You're listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast, part of Just Powers, an interdisciplinary and community-engaged network of research projects focused on climate justice issues and socially just approaches to energy transition. I'm Dr. Sheena Wilson, and in this two-part series titled Hashtag Climate Ready Yeg, A Decade in Transition, we sit down with the team from La Cité Résiliente, a bilingual community-based energy transition project aimed at developing community resiliency through community engagement and collaborative practices oriented towards climate justice. In this episode, we chat with the architectural and engineering team from the La Cité Résiliente project, including Jacob Kamar, Principal Engineer with Revolve Engineering, Trina Larson, Principal at Larson Engineering, and Shafraz Kaba, Principal Architect with Ask for a Better World. In this conversation, we delve into the technical aspects of retrofitting buildings for climate resiliency and the networking necessary for district energy systems, while also discussing how such technical aspects are nevertheless always tied to broader ideas around community, infrastructure, and systemic change. Thank you for being here today and coming to talk about La Cité Résiliente. I'm excited to hear your perspectives on this project that we're working on together. So the first things first, maybe we can introduce ourselves to the listeners. So Trina, do you want to start? Sure. I'm Trina Larson. I'm an electrical engineer and I run uh, Larson Engineering. I'm Shafraz Kaba. I'm the principal of Ask for a Better World. We focus on regenerative and uh, carbon neutral projects. And I'm Jacob Kumar with Revolve Engineering. We are mostly energy consultants. Great. Thank you. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked to uh, other people on the project, Danielle, Danny, Laurence, and we talked a bit about what's uh, going on in the project. But maybe you would like to share with listeners sort of what your team is doing, because we have, you know, we have a couple of teams. It takes a lot of people to organize an energy, uh, an energy collaboration in the, in the community. Maybe Shafraz, do you want to do you want to take that question first? Sure. I guess we embarked on this with the idea of looking at the building itself um, in the heart of uh, Bonnie Dune and the uh, French Quarter, as it were. So uh, we walked through and did a, a building audit and review of the building systems at La Cité Francophone, and we were beginning to understand how it is working, what is working well and what is not. And then uh, the next step is to complete an ASHRAE level two uh, energy model to help the city with its uh, building benchmarking program. And that will give us an understanding of how, again, we can look at the different building systems to make improvements going forward. Right, and maybe you want to explain to everyone what your role on the on the project is, and sort of what oh, your great. team at Ask yeah, yeah. does, because there's also sure. a bunch of other people from Ask that help out. Sure, yeah. So um, our team is uh, leading sort of the uh, facilitation of the different um, engineering and architectural professionals on the project. So um, with Trina uh, and Jacob helping out, we basically. Um, help coordinate a building systems approach or a integrated approach of how the building is working and what we can do to map out a 10-year uh, vision to hopefully get uh, off of fossil fuels or reduce carbon or uh, reduce even utility bills just from the uh, recommendations we'll be doing. 
Right. Thank you. And recently we presented to some of the other building owners in the community and we presented to the manager and the executive director of, of La Cité Francophone some of some of what we're thinking through already at this stage in the project. So I don't know, Jacob, do you want to talk a little bit about what you uh, you spoke to in terms of a district energy project? Yeah, I, I think this project is unique in that it's kind of a worst case scenario in a lot of ways um, in terms of um, not only thinking of electrification of the building, the fact that there's not much room um, to install renewables, um, whether it's on the roof or into the ground. And they've also done some recent upgrades on rooftop units. So they've already spent some money and we've seen that as a barrier to deeper energy retrofit. So uh, besides the easy stuff that we're identifying with the audit, we we're thinking ahead and saying, well, how would we ever in the future provide this building with an electric or a renewable source of energy? And um, based on the site, we had to look outside of the um, boundaries of the, of the project. So we immediately, you know, across the road, we see a big school with a big field. We have um, Campus Saint-Jean that is close by, again, with a big field and the university certainly has experience with uh, district energy. So um, we kind of talked about how future neighborhoods, um, I mean, everybody can think inward and do it on their own. If you have room, you can install, let's say, ground source heat pumps, a geo system on your own lot, but a lot of people won't have room. And so what is the solution going to be? Um, because we're still very limited in terms of options for converting to electric-based systems. So um, community energy is going to become a bigger thing. And so we're trying to look at our neighbors and say, hey, can we share a resource? Um, is there buildings um, nearby that have waste heat that is available for use? Or maybe this building is actually going to, in the end, have lots of waste heat that neighbors could use. Um, and it's sort of the same concept that we um, uh, sold at Blatchford. Again, using one building's heat to heat another one. Um, a lot of buildings, and people don't realize that mo a lot of buildings and most commercial buildings in Edmonton are actually cooling dominant, or at least could be if they had heat recovery um, on the fresh air system. So there's lots of waste heat uh, available. Um, and so we were just kind of speaking to the opportunity and the, maybe the... On one hand, it's kind of a positive opportunity, right? Oh, so, 100%. Like, we're it's... trying to show a pilot of a community-based collaborative effort to make this thing totally. and, positive. Totally. And, and the great thing is that it engages the community and makes you think instead of that me, me, me to look and collaborate and some awesome things can happen when you look to your community. Yeah, that's really interesting because until we had this conversation, I hadn't really thought it through from that perspective that we actually 
have to collaborate with the neighbors. I, of course, had started the project hoping we could encourage collaboration because, of course, everyone looks at La Cité uh, Francophone and they think, oh, yeah, that's a great project for solar, whether it's the windows or the roof or whatever. And, of course, the audit revealed that that's a bit more complicated and we can get Trina to speak to that in a minute. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to hear you um, explain it to me in a different way where actually, even if that hadn't been part of our strategy, we might have had to look outward. Um, and also, too, you know, people can do their own retrofits um, if they have the space, but also if they have the money, right? And if they have the knowledge and all these things get harder and harder. So, you know, even if there's residents in Bonnie Dune, we're encouraging them to come listen in. If they want to do it themselves, there's a lot of learning and sharing that can happen there. But I, I, th I think it would be interesting to hear from you, Trina, now to think about electrification and really this move towards electrification as we think about renewables and, you know, a bit of what you've observed in the building itself and maybe also generally why the move to electrical. Right. So the big move towards electrical uh, and electrification of our buildings is to reduce our carbon impact overall. Now, here in Alberta, we still burn a lot of coal, but we do know that we're looking to re to close the coal-generating plants in the next 20 years. And as we do that, our grid cleans itself up. It gets cleaner for its carbon, carbon intensity. And eventually, it should move to a grid that is cleaner than burning natural gas on site. And that's the idea long-term, in which case you move your buildings to be electrified rather than burning natural gas and, again, reducing your carbon impact. So looking at La Cité, we looked at it and said, what type of, what, what elements can we electrify? And certainly Jacob alluded to all of the rooftop units that have just recently been replaced. Those are all natural gas. We're like not likely going to be able to touch them for a while. But the other thing that the rooftop units do is they take up some of the roof space, making it harder to put photovoltaic on top. Um, and that's the big reason that the photovoltaic impact isn't as big as what you would think from the overall footprint of the building. We have rooftop units, we have other penetrations on the roof, and then we have a faceted roof. There's multiple levels and multiple orientations in order to get that beautiful curve at the front, um, which basically means that you're limiting the number of places you can put your your photovoltaic panels. Um, so, so we have looked at it and doing some rough calculations as to what we can achieve, and we can certainly achieve more through uh, through the possibilities of reducing the use in the building more than we can with the photovoltaic. But if you add the two together, again, you're reducing your overall carbon impact. Yeah, the first step is always to reduce the loads or, or increase energy efficiency. Like, that's typically how we make the biggest most cost-effective gains is looking at what the building is currently using and how do we make them better. Like lighting, as Trina inventoried, is easy. Um, and then looking at plug loads, looking at equipment, looking at even the building systems. How does the building actually s start up the heating, the cooling, and you know, are, is it on a cycle or a programmable sort of system or whether or not we can tweak that. Right. And that becomes the first thing is, is the reduction. And even though we have new rooftop units, it doesn't mean that they're running at the optimal times at this point. They, they may be running more than they need to, particularly during unoccupied hours. So we should be using energy where needed, when needed. 
And that's the goal of the audit, ultimately, is to use that to use it where needed, when needed. I just wanted to explain a couple things to listeners who may not uh, know as much about tech. So this idea of a cooling dominant building, that means you're spending most of your money on air conditioning, right? That the building run runs hot and so you're paying for cooling. Um, and when you talk about rooftop units, do you want to just explain to people what a rooftop unit is? Not everybody knows. We don't have them on homes. Uh, I'll let can, Jacob give sure. a better answer. Okay. Uh, just imagine a furnace that's sideways on top of your house. But no, it's it's really just an air handling unit to, um, it just moves air, um, heats it up, um, and they just put it on the roof practically just because of space. But you take air, return air from the space, you bring in some fresh air, um, and then mix it together and then heat it up with natural gas and then send it back down, essentially. Great. Thank you. I really appreciated um, some of the explanations about um, making the building more efficient or how a district energy system can share energy because I think a lot of the conversation around energy is that our energy demands are going to constantly go up and yet we know that we have to become carbon neutral at some point. And it's interesting to realize how much profit is being made off both cooling and heating. So I like the example of Safeway, right, where you're cooling to keep your refrigeration units going, but you're not using that that air, that cool air. The, waste the, the, heat. The waste heat, yeah, the waste heat. And then you're heating the building and just the ways that a district energy system can allow for that kind of sharing to the point where it's not always economically feasible under the same business model. Is that also... Well, it's also perverse that we yeah. have buildings that in our cold climate or in winter are having to use mechanical cooling. It's kind of crazy. So that that's also part of our integration and how we work together is like, why don't we use waste uh, as food uh, for another system? So um, even at La Cité, we eye the, the neighboring buildings going, hey, there's a senior's residence next door. That's likely a heating dominated building or a, a building that can actually take some of our waste heat that's generated. If we are able to sh uh, create a sharing of energy agreement. <laughs> and uh, yesterday we did learn about some complexities of energy crossing property lines or right-of-ways that are a little bit of a challenge, but that that's where, again, political will and some partnerships and pushing for that can help really now, uh, like we alluded to, create a pilot of what is possible. I thought that was a really important takeaway from our from our recent meeting because a lot of the a lot of what needs to happen to make energy transition happen is around political will and social and cultural attitudes and practices and habits and all of that. And I think that was pretty evident. There was a lot of technical expertise in the room and people were really willing to implement these things. And then we run into policy barriers. We run into barriers with different uh, companies vying for, you know, profit and power and control over certain roadways or protection of investments they've already made over the long term. So how, you know, we're, we're going to have to come up with ways to, to mitigate for that um, and, and make these kinds of energy projects possible because it's not always possible to, to keep an energy project on one side of the street without uh, crossing, crossing any major throughways, right? It's not possible, but it's also not practical because so often you do have situations where one building is utilizing way more energy than another and another the adjacent building may be producing energy whether it's in the form of heat or whether it's in the form of solar panels on the roof there should be a mechanism that you can share it 
between local buildings rather than each building being its own island. And that's the whole idea of creating a community-based district system or a community-focused utility. Is like, how do we start to create these neighborhood hubs or uh, opportunities where we can start to um, break down the regulatory barriers and hopefully the utility companies are supportive rather than obstructionist <laughs> and that's sort of how uh i think this is exciting for us as a team is like this this will be a, as jacob said kind of the worst case scenario but possibly uh, a really interesting case study of how to start to create sharing agreements or break down these barriers or or just point out that this is something we need to push forward with especially if we want to meet things like the edmonton declaration um and the very ambitious targets the city has set for itself. I, I see it often as an opportunity. We identified what the challenges are, and now we can use that challenge as an opportunity. So what is the opportunity mm -hmm. to bring the utilities on board and see the long-term potential? Because if they continue business as to, they do today, they won't be in business 20 years from now. So how can we use this current regulatory challenge as an opportunity for these for, for these utilities to have a long longer term outlook. Yeah, that's a great point. And I also think that it's interesting because they are being very cooperative when these are new builds, right? Those agreements are set up initially, and so everything is clear from the get-go. What's a little bit harder in this case is a retrofit, and yet we do have to retrofit our cities. We can't tear them down and start again, and so we have to find ways to be creative, create these relationships across across communities. And I think, you know, we should probably point to the enthusiasm that we've encountered, too. I mean, you know, the recent meeting was really, really quite energizing, um, in other ways, because we have so much buy-in, so many people looking at maintenance that needs to be done anyways, and so they want to do the maintenance in ways that are going to get us to our our global climate targets. So that was very positive. Yeah. The other thing, the other stat that I found really intriguing from our recent meeting was when Lisa Dockman from the city of Edmonton said 100% of the existing buildings need to be renovated in order to make our targets. So what do those renovations look like? And how, as the community, can we use this project to showcase what can be done at various ages of buildings, including these ones that have recently had upgrades? And they need to be done within a generation, right? Yes. So we can no longer really wait until the building systems come to the end of their useful life. We actually need to start to make that business case or the these types of partnerships work in a district or in a community level to make that case. Well, I think what's really important is the simply just this planning that's happening for this project is not many people are actually thinking of the future and how they will have to adapt or change because we've become so complacent with a decade of natural gas, um, which Being will, cheap. yeah, which it will come to an end, but it's, um, a decade of natural gas has allowed us to basically build really large buildings, inefficient buildings and not pay the cost for that. And right now, if you look at the first year number, a lot of energy efficiency on the books might not make a lot of sense. If you look at the paybacks, whether it's windows or envelope or ground source heat pumps or anything else, there's some easy wins for sure. But if you look at um, where natural gases will go, where carbon taxes will go, 
how quickly we need to decarbonize, um, people are not afraid enough of what $14, $15 per gigajoule natural gas looks like. They forget 2008 when natural gas was $14 a gigajoule. And if they were to look at their energy bill at those prices, they would say, we can't afford this. And that would completely change the economics and the decision-making. The exciting thing for me is, even in a time when that isn't happening, the community and the buy-in that we, we're getting from so many different stakeholders and the cooperation that we're getting, that's what excites me in the fact that we will overcome some of these challenges. We will put pressure eventually. There will be political pressure. Um, and I think once those price signals and the energy tar the energy prices force us to be collaborative, um, I think there's going to be a lot of change happening very fast. But what's cool about this project is it's just ahead of its time. We're planning way ahead, even though it might be not that far ahead. Well, the good thing is at least the building and energy code has uh, increased in its performance requirements. Hopefully it'll increase a little faster and than it has in the last little while, but um, I think right now, in the last year alone, some builders have realized that it's, it's no longer business as usual. For sure, yeah, the energy code is great. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize how easy it is to get like 50% reduction in all building energy use. It's, it's actually dead simple, and if you would have done it from the start, probably a two to three year payback. Um, that's, that's key, doing it early and understanding the, the integration of systems. And, and the example I'll use is the fresh air, those rooftop units at La Cité. Um, you require fresh air to, to bring in fresh air into the building for the building, uh, as per building code requirements. You need fresh air in the building. People and, like to breathe. Yeah. And... So when you bring in the return air from the space, you're mixing it with fresh air from outside. Those rooftop units are outside. So you're taking on a cold day, minus 25 degree air and mixing it with 20 degree air and you get a certain temperature and then you have to heat it back up. There's a thing called energy recovery, which is essentially ventilators, which is essentially um, a heat exchanger, which takes the heat from your exhaust air, which you're just dumping outside and exchanges the heat to the fresh air. So instead of the fresh air coming in at minus 25, it can come in at like 10 degrees, which means you can bring in way less air. And I liken it to the amount of fresh air in that building, I liken it to an entire wall, you know, probably 10 meters wide, wide open into the building, bringing in fresh air. That's how much energy that, we're, that building is using right now. And with one piece of tech that has a really great payback, you would eliminate that load entirely or almost entirely. And that's like a 50% reduction in energy for no effort. And every building can do that. Um, so that's why, you know, people think that, you know, when you hear targets from the city saying, oh, 100% of buildings need to reduce by 50%, I laugh at that. I say that's nothing. It just takes minimal effort. The next step, decarbonizing, that's, I'm, that's not easy. Um, the last few percentage points are always the toughest to get, but that first part to get started is easy. easy. Yeah, 40% of uh, existing energy use is wasted, right? Like we can find 40% savings just by looking at what we throughout in that 
you know, exhaust heat, in the, you know, lighting inefficiencies, in the lack of insulation in certain buildings, in the poor performing windows, or lack of weather stripping even. So all of these things are, are easily uh, put together and then compound to a, a, a really great energy saving. And I think this is really important information for people to have, both about, you know, their community centres, the buildings that they work in, and also where we live, because um, I think popular conversation is often that um, we abdicate possibly a little bit of responsibility because we say we live in a cold climate, we can't bike such and such number of months a year like everybody else around the world. But that actually there is so much, so much energy being wasted, really. We're just like burning up the, the fossil fuels and burning up money. And speaking of money, I'm also thinking about how does how does the business case need to change for this? Because we we hear lots about business as usual can't carry on, but quite literally we have to start accounting for these things differently. We know that some cities are taking that on and doing carbon budgets, and that there's a number of different ways in which you can um, make a business case if you're not using the same metrics that we've been using to this point. So, do, do one of you want to speak to that? Car- carbon budgets and carbon levies are a really important tool to make this work. Um, and that that's also part of the political challenge. Of course, taxes are, are not popular with most people. So hence, um, we have a current provincial government that wants to tear that idea down or, or minimize that impact, whereas we kind of need the opposite. We need to actually create that mechanism that incentivizes that investment in energy efficiency and then the retrofits and improvements and investments in renewables. It's interesting too because it's called a levy or a tax so people are against it but actually imagining that the market is going to contribute to sorting this out is a very conservative economic attitude and so the resistance against that is in some ways. Um, yeah. So I, I for me it's it's a the, the problem of how do you understand uh, the economics of carbon um, and then how do you make that part of our reality. And um, I think for far too long we've ignored sort of externalities of nature and natural systems or free energy or even uh, the cost of us polluting right? The cost of us emitting carbon dioxide. And that's the hard part is like, how do you um, equate what we see in the Paris Agreement and the need to decarbonize or the need to get off of fossil fuels as soon as possible with that financial sort of mechanism of, well, growth is good, or let's keep increasing productivity and production in our world. And we have to start to intertwine that idea of growth and the idea of emissions and try to rebalance that with the idea there's a lot of potential just in energy efficiency and making more productive the energy we do use without emitting that kind of pollution that goes along with it. It's kind of ironic that we have to use a financial instrument to remind us that there's bigger things than financial instruments. (laughs) Because yes, we're absolutely because we, you know, in today's in Canada and you and North America, maybe in general, we often look at first cost. What's the first cost? We, if it's more expensive, we don't want it, right? And you, I think as a culture, we need to remember that you one, you get what you pay for, and 
you know, you build an ugly building, that's not giving you any value. 20 years down the line, when you look at that horrible facade and you're like, man, this city looks awful, you know, there there's something in Europe that's to be said about you just spend a lot of durability. money. Durability. Yeah, durability and architecture of something, walking by a building and seeing how beautiful it is, just walking through your local street and seeing beautiful buildings and being happy and seeing that, being proud, there's a value to that. There's no way for us to cost that. But right now we we don't value things unless, you know, we'll, well, we value things like a hot tub or a granite countertop. And we never ask what the payback is with those, but anything else with energy efficiency or carbon attached to it, it's like, wow, what's the payback? What's the business case? And these days I tell my clients that if, maybe not these words, but if if you're looking at paybacks, you're lost in the weeds because right now it's about risk. The world is going to change more, I think, in the next five or 10 years than it has in the last century. And energy prices are not going to be what you think they are. Um, and people are not afraid enough of, again, what their energy bill looks like under a different world where natural gas is not free. Maybe it should be insurance costs. Because maybe having, having just seen what, uh, for example, my mom lives in a, a development that has condo fees and her condo fees went up more than 50% this year alone because of all the climate change related disasters insurance companies had to pay for in the last little while, which they haven't recovered from. Maybe that is how we need to frame the argument instead of your energy costs going up. No, you're not going to be able to insure your house or your, you know, type of living. It's a great example. And after the Calgary floods and the Formicary fire, all of our insurance doubled basically. And people don't see that as a carbon tax, but that's what it is. It's a carbon tax. The problem with that one is there's no incentive set up to change behavior, right? It's a cost that you're paying. It's a carbon tax, but has no incentives to actually change behavior or doesn't actually incentivize anything else or well, fund anything else. The insurance companies are trying to create a mechanism to incent people to do better like there are there there's the institute for catastrophic loss reduction <laughs> yeah that but, is creating these uh, policies or ideas of okay we need to actually push for this but we need a direct incentive because the, in right. the incentive for the insurance companies is to deny people's claims or to say you know what you can't get flood insurance anymore right that's their incentive well I, maybe it's sort of the the need to equate that that insurance to climate mm -hmm. challenges and equate that to why we need carbon taxes and why we need to create more sticks rather than carrots and why we need to actually start to build better things. Well, and not to use an economic argument, I hate kind of doing that, but the best clients and the people, the companies that are going to be around are the ones that are seeing that risk. You know, we have clients that say, we realize that if we install a natural gas system today, we're ripping it out in five or 10 years. And what's, regardless of the first cost today of installing a renewable system, it's riskier to have to replace this later because it's going to cost way more. And of course, retrofits and doing things after are challenging, but especially again, at La Cité, if we could have gone at phase two and install a geosystem under the parking lot, we wouldn't even have been, we wouldn't be having this conversation. 
But at that time, they would have said, well, what's the payback? And now, you know, we're asking like, well, what's it cost to actually retrofit and change all of these old school high temperature systems? Um, so that's where people need to start looking at risk and what is the cost of not doing this now? It's interesting to make these arguments, you know, um, with your own home too, right? Like what what kinds of investments do you want to make yeah. now uh, in smart ways that probably save you a little bit on your energy bill, but um, but over the long term, you know, are the right choice to make for many reasons, all the externalities that aren't being counted and will will have some financial return, hopefully. Well, that's sort of the hope of adding renewables or solar even, you know, you invest in building a, uh, you know, um, a solar array that provides you, when you have that cost, uh, a guaranteed basic idea of what the price of electricity will be. Because you've paid for that system, it's generating your electricity. And at at a certain point, you no longer have to pay for that. And so whatever energy it's generating after that will be uh, a financial benefit to you. And I think Trina is going to be a lot busier in the future as we electrify and we see actually the financial sensibility of that. That's exactly right. And the... The interesting thing, even on something like La Cité, where we don't have as much solar available to us as we would have first thought, all the solar that we would put on the building would be used by the building at all times. So what that means is every kilowatt hour that is produced by that solar array reduces the overall electrical cost of the building because it's a one-for-one ratio at that point. We don't have to get into trying to resell back. And in most buildings, particularly taller buildings, um, if you get over three or four stories, that's the situation that you're at. The amount of available roof space for solar is going to be lower than the base load of the building, so you will always use that solar power. And a lot of uh, community benefits agreements are being drawn up. So, for example, La Cité is a community centre and it reports to a board. So there are ways in which those savings on electrical could be, there could be decisions made about whether that was reinvested into other retrofits so that it becomes a bit of a snowball effect where the maintenance uh, can be maintained over time, um, you know, and additional retrofits. Or it also is a scenario in which there can be community agreements about what other kinds of benefits uh, the community would see from that. Because one thing we've talked about a bit is policy and carrots and sticks and um, those kinds of things, but also what people really want to see from their neighborhood in a lot of cases is very positive things, right? They want to see more community building. They want to see more opportunities in the neighborhood. They want to see, you know, more interesting possibilities pop up as we commute less far distances. They want to see more local businesses. They want to see more locally produced food. So those are all things that can be negotiated into a community benefits agreement if there are going to be savings. I have another I have another question for you that, you know, might be coming a bit out of left field because we've not been talking about this, but recently there's this big upswing in the popularity of the hydrogen conversation. And so we're talking a lot about um, electrification. Um, does hydrogen work in parallel to that or is that kind of a uh, a new and competing discourse because it can use the the same infrastructures that are there for natural gas? Or do you want to speak to that a little bit? In the context of cars and comparing it to a straight electric car, it's, the efficiency is not even close, partly because 
one, you need to make the hydrogen. So there's inefficiency there. Then you have to transport it, store it, and then store it again at the point where, and then when you move the hydrogen to your car, now you need to convert it back to electricity. So I'm not saying that there isn't a place for hydrogen. Um, I'm by no means an expert, um, but um, I think like you alluded to at the recent meeting, the solutions are already there. It's just a lack of political will. We don't need, and I think some of these solutions make us think like, oh, we need this breakthrough in hydrogen stuff. It's like, no, it's already there. We just need to do it. Um, the reality is if we put up solar panel in every single building in Bonnie Dune, it probably wouldn't cover the electricity use of all those buildings. Um, and so we still need the grid, and that's why we need to engage EPCOR and other utilities to actually help us along. And that's why, you know, whether, not to get all crazy anti-capitalist here, but maybe just like Germany, they started, you know, you serve us. EPCOR is there for us. And if you're not serving our needs, then we're taking over, you know. And that's what Germany started doing is they just started taking back utilities and things because if we want green power and you're like, no, my business case says that coal is the way to go, you know what? We take over and we, you know, <laughs> force things upon you. So I think utilities need to think that way too, is that um, if when there's enough political will, we can force you to do things. Because that's how they became privatized in the first place. People sometimes think that sounds like a radical suggestion, but actually it hasn't been so many years that they've been corporate or like incorporated or privatized. It was originally Capital Power or Edmonton Power or something. What was it? Like up to the 90s, right? Edmonton Power. And then actually Capital Power spun off of EPCOR, right? Right. Yeah, totally. And yeah, the conversation of going, the fact that it used to be a public utility, essentially, it was privatized, but going back seems like such a crazy adult, you know, conservatives will just go, ah, oh, you're just, it's socialism. You're trying to take over everything. It's like, no, this has been done all over the, all over the place. So overall, the market divides because it wants you to be selfish and greedy, you know, and compete where that's not our natural nature. We're social animals and cooperative animals by nature. And I think that's why we're just so unhappy with the world as it is. Maybe it's the um, the idea we need every possible carbon reducing solution uh, because we have this urgent and uh, sustained need to to decarbonize, and and maybe the market will show which ones are the most cost effective ones. Maybe that's how we let the market sort of show the benefits of solar and wind being super cheap. You can already see that in production prices of those relative to coal. You can already yeah. see that relative to even the natural gas um, uh, electrical generating stations, right? So if people really want to believe in the market, look at the numbers already, start to start to do the math. The, the hard part is the storage, right? The storage and the capacity to deliver electricity when wind turbines don't 
return our solar doesn't have the sun to shine on it. We need it. We need a base load. Yeah. Uh, we, we need something that's generating for base load. We should be looking at other areas and a small, uh, small nuclear is something that could be used for base load uh, that has, uh, has a, a lot of efficiencies about it. It's not the same nuclear from the 1980s. They've done a lot. More, they've done a lot of work on it since, and that may be our our carbon neutral base load in areas where we don't have water that we can use. Well, I'll give you an example of a perfect um, base load. And I just met at uh, at a UVA career event. I met Shot from Terrapin. He they are developing, and they just got a government grant, federal grant. You might have heard in Grand Prairie, they're developing the first geothermal deep geothermal power plant. So not like the geothermal for heating and cooling, that's shallow. This is deep where you send water down, bring back steam and drive a turbine to generate electricity. Used all over the world, but Canada is a huge laggard in this. This is one of our first things. And this takes tons of drilling expertise and, um, you know, Something that I think in, I can't remember, do we have that in Alberta? <laughs> well, yes, that's right. We have a lot of expertise. And you'd think that the government would want to put people back to work using, you know, all these drillers that have all this expertise. You'd think you'd want them. How much effort, how much time, how much money has the Alberta government given these guys? None. And I asked myself why, and I think it's because the you know when you have an established energy market you can't let anybody in you try to hold the door as long as possible that's what the oil companies are doing they're poking their toe they're pretending like they're investing in renewables but they hold the guard as long as possible because they know that once it comes it's a wave you know it's just going to be a flood of all this technology and so that's the depressing part, and that's where we need political will from people to say, all these technologies are on our doorstep. There's so many drillers we can put back to work. Can you imagine how many people we can get back to work drilling wells for geothermal energy? It's unbelievable, the potential there, but the current government has zero appetite for that, even though there's tons of drillers that would love to be doing that. So um, I, I do think it's, yeah, the market will eventually, you know, Eventually, companies will say, okay, well, this is cheaper. I'm still going to do that. But um, we need do need political will just to, you know, push this a little bit harder. I, I had no idea that there was the deep geothermal potential here. That's really cool. All over Alberta. Yeah. You're actually seeing it, the ring of fire around the whole planet. Um, and almost every country has tapped into it except Canada. We've done nothing. And uh, the other cool thing that is really exciting is in some places where you can't, you can't get 100 degrees, right, to create steam, to generate power, you might get 60 or 80 degrees. But that's so beautiful because you can create greenhouses, free heat forever, you know? And we can grow our food right here, create new economies, new jobs. But anybody interested? No. That they're not getting any help in developing that. And to be fair, the last government didn't give them a ton of time either. But 
Well, one interesting thing is that some uh, new energy systems demand more of a shift in the way we do business, more of a shift in the way we live. And so there does seem to be a kind of appeal to stick with the ones that allow us to live the same old, same old. But there are some real reasons to want to think about living differently, possibly. Not everybody's benefiting equally from the current systems. Not everybody thinks that all of this is functioning as seamlessly as the powers uh, that be sometimes uh, suggest. And so I'm also thinking about what you each see as a resilient community. We're working on this project called La Cité Résiliente. We're talking about community resiliency. And so I was just wondering if each of you could speak to what your definition of resiliency is. I honestly think that this project, um, one thing we're not great of at, especially in North America, is community. Um, and what I like about this project is we're bringing in these people to have these conversations because to me, that's a resilient community, a community that's addressed the problems and decided how we're going to respond because that is the scary part is when natural gas, is, natural gas prices spike, there's going to be a lot of poor people that are going to be left literally out in the cold. And how do they respond when they don't have a plan? They don't have any support. Uh, systems. They don't know that their neighbors are having the same problem or that they don't know where to go to find solutions or how to band together to create a solution and just change things. So I think a resilient community is a community that is actually a community, you know, for lack of a better word. But we need to start talking to our neighbors and building these communities and these support systems because otherwise we're going to revert to this capitalist me, 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 I'm going to take care of my own and I'm just going to grab all the toilet paper and then you have none. <laughs> <laughs> well, what um, for me, the resiliency is, is uh, appreciating the strength of diversity and diversity of, well, at the moment, all things uh, down to energy sources, down to systems, down to people. And, and that diversity is where the community can really uh, come together and share the strengths of each other because everyone has different strengths everyone has different interests everything has every every person every community has something different to offer and yeah i think the la cité résiliente is sort of for me uh an amazing way to draw out everyone's strengths and then help build something on top of that and echoing what Jacob and Shafraz said, I, I do see resiliency as the community as well. And moving away from guilt, one of the things that I've seen happening so often is that people are made to feel guilty about what they're doing or what they're not doing. And by building up the community as a whole, we can do something together. And I think that is a lot stronger and it moves it, it moves into it, it moves away from guilt is and the judgment. big thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and allows us to actually see potential, right? Because we're all part of this system. Mm -hmm. There's nobody yeah. there's nobody exempt from it. We all live in this uh, system and this society that we've created. So um, I have two last questions here. So what is you know what is the most surprising or interesting thing that you've learned so far in the process of of this project? Shafraz is laughing. Do you have something that you, you oh, learned? Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think the whole um, issue with property lines and me versus we, 
uh, and the you know the issue of right of ways and utility companies kind of holding guard on on their rights and their contracts and and they're basically holding communities hostage on on the on developing these types of solutions and um, but uh, what I was also super surprised at is the willingness of our community partners in and around La Cité uh, to actually try to tear those barriers down. So the University of Alberta, um, St. Thomas, the uh, Rutherford School and the Public School Board are very, very interested in actually tackling that problem. They, they didn't throw up their hands and go, oh, well, we can't do anything. They are actually, from my mind, energized about this. Again, a pilot opportunity to show what we could possibly do, how we can possibly band together and and erase some of those boundaries that you know are maybe regulatory or or financial. But banding together, I think, is how we're going to show that strength. And certainly at a time, too, I can't help but note when, you know, the people from the school boards and the schools were there uh, running from schools where they were organizing events and fundraising because there's just been a 10% cut to to schools and public education approximately, right? And where the university has been cut by 20%. So we're literally possibly watching the death of public education in the province. And how does it help to have your infrastructure cost you less as you go into a time of cutbacks? We'll say cutbacks, Yeah. Yeah. What was it, what's been the thing for you, Jacob? I mean, I don't know if it's a surprise, but just the realization of the other people in the room that are having the, the exact same thoughts and conversations and the exact same problems. They're they have a building and they're like, Man, we're gonna have to upgrade and change this and they're just starting to realize like, wow, I haven't thought about this at all. You know, I was probably just gonna upgrade my furnace, but starting to sound like a little risky situation, right? So um, you forget about your neighbors and the fact that everybody around you is having the same problem um, and is going to have to have the same challenges. So again, I don't know if that's a surprise, but I just remember that kind of standing out to me. Yeah, I think there was a fair bit of gratitude there. People going, oh man, I'm glad I showed up this morning because I have to do all of this. And it, you know, ha- none of this had dawned on me really. Yeah. And and now we can share information, resources, and, you know, our case studies and best, best practices. Right, that's right. Yeah, to me, it is in the same, the community engagement and the fact that people wanted to be there. There's been a lot of apathy seen about so many things that have been happening lately um, that I just can't do anything about it. And yet we had a room, two two meetings in a row, we had a room filled with people from the community that were highly engaged, highly interested, and wanting to make a change, both, both supporting what La Cité is doing and also saying, hey, let us, yes, let's be the showcase. Yes, let's be the community that can drive some change. And I think that's so exciting. 
You know, it's interesting because I think every year we've kind of gained one percentage point when the city of Edmonton does its polls in the city for asking who cares about climate change. So I think it started out at about 72 or something. Now it's at 74% of Edmontonians uh, care about climate change and want to take action on climate change. Uh, Very high stats also for the fact they think it's too taboo to talk to their neighbor about, you know, you just don't talk about climate change in this province. Um, But it's really interesting to hear those stats and to feel buoyed by those stats. I've used them very often. But then to be in these rooms where actually people are very excited and energized to have an avenue to take action. And for me, one of the big learnings was... um I think just the amount of times stereotypes about different demographics were disrupted, right? I think about this uh, meeting that we had recently with the Francophone seniors. And I think, you know, there's some attitude that seniors in general vote conservative. And of course, we don't know exactly how they voted, but certainly their ideas about how we should be addressing climate change, how we shouldn't be so wasteful, how they have skills and knowledge and ideas about, you know, the the dirt and the earth that we're covering up with pavement and what the youth could learn about just uh, being a bit more... um, I don't want to say frugal, but a bit more sustainable in their practices is quite interesting relative to the stereotypes that are set up in the media, for example, where it's the youth that really want to change. And, you know, it's the baby boomers who somehow used up all the uh, resources on the planet. And that isn't that isn't really how things played out, right? There's a certain percentage of the population that's benefited enormously from all of this. The rest of us live in this system, and we should think seriously and meaningfully about how, how much we benefit from this. So that's it's been interesting to really watch that play out, I think, right? Um, so I want to ask you a question about what you would like to see um, – from the future. I ask almost everybody that I interview what they, not what they imagine will be from the future, because you all have quite a bit of technical expertise about, you know, what probably will play out in the next number of years. But what do you actually want from the future? We've asked some of these questions from the community in the form of what does success look like? But um, what do you want from a future uh, here in Edmonton and maybe in, in relationship to the project or your own lives? Ultimately, I want a place where my kids can grow up and still be in connection with nature, that they're not stuck in a car all the time, that they can run out and go for a run in the river valley, that they can enjoy plants and animals, that they can be in places that are clean and healthy. And they can do that until they're 100 and that their kids can do the same thing. That's the world that I would love to love to see. Yeah, thank you. Shafraz is looking very pensive. Jacob, do you want to? I was stalling for time. <laughs> stalling. Uh, so was I. Um, but I think in my mind, it's it's maybe we're at a point where we we are beginning to really find equity for people different groups who have not uh, been treated fairly. And I think that's my future hope is that we we see more of that building of um, fairness, equity, and, and community that can help recognize the challenges of all, you know, different types of groups from the indigenous to, you know, um, even... Um, visible minorities to uh, even women uh, who have not been sort of all on this level playing field. And I think we've just seen sort of 
right now some of the difficulties that are still happening around truth and reconciliation. Uh, we still see inequality in you know uh, how women are are remunerated or. Uh, paid or or recognized, and and what was Jacob joking about earlier that uh, men should be banned from political office for like thirty years? And Trina said maybe two hundred and ten. Um, so I think yeah, I think the 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 idea is we need to rebalance our world and create equity in a a meaningful way. And I think we're my hope is we're going to get there. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I say this with no joke at all. Um, I really hope we tear capitalism down brick by brick because people need to start realizing that these systems are so fundamentally unfair. Um, a lot of people vote thinking that they're rich. You know, you make ninety thousand, hundred, ten thousand dollars at your job, and you're like, man, I'm rich. I'm going to vote for conservative because they're going to give me tax breaks. They don't realize that the the laws and the tax breaks are set up not for you. Those are set up for the billionaires. You're way closer to the person making $0 or $14,000 a year than you are to the CEO making $40 million a year. Like it's not even close, right? And so I think people need to realize um, just how unfair this planet is and how it's set up and... Um, because that a lot of the problems that we currently face are from those inequities. Um, and I think if we start making the world fair um, in terms of the economic system and everything, I think everything else will kind of follow from that. And I think we can organize that around energy transition. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, well, I want to thank all of you for coming in today to the studio, but also for bringing all of your expertise and energy and enthusiasm to the La Cité Résiliente project that hopefully becomes, I don't know what, the Bonnie Dune Résiliente project or something much bigger than just this partnership between La Cité and Campus Saint-Jean. So thank you all very much. And I look forward to seeing where we go next with this. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you for listening to the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast. Be sure to visit justpowers.ca to learn more about these projects, access resources, and discover related content. Just Powers is made possible by support from a number of organizations, including but not limited to Future Energy Systems Canada First Research Excellence Fund, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Cool Institute of Advanced Study, Campus Saint-Jean, the University of Alberta, and Alberta Ecotrust. This series of the Deep Energy Literacy Podcast is produced by Jesse Beyer and recorded and mixed by Catlin W. Cusick at Sublet Sound in Edmonton, Alberta.